Let's just let's just leave the business people out of it because it's such a hot button. But I'm telling you, we would move so much more quickly as an industry if lawyers could team with business people. And I you know, listen. You can spot all the issues around that that you want, but、uh, business people who have some experience in one sector and bring it to the legal sector is not a bad thing. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today, we welcome Mark Britton to the show. Mark is well known throughout the industry as the founder and former CEO of Avo, and he currently is the strategic director of the Madrona Venture Group and the principal at Greater B Corp. Additionally, Mark serves on the board of directors right here at Clio, and serves on the board of regents at Gonzaga University. Mark, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jack. So, Mark,、uh, you've got a really unique perspective on what's going on both in the legal industry and beyond right now. Can you tell us what's most on your mind and what some of your key observations might be about what's going on in the world right now? Yeah, I well, God, it's it's sometimes it's hard to think about just legal when so much crazy stuff is going on. I will say it, it's just this fascinating thing. I feel like every time I open the news, it feels like your parents are fighting.、Um, and I guess if I just kind of think about it at a macro level, what I'd love to see is for us to just tone down a bit of the rhetoric and the political rhetoric. But at least here in the United States, it's a little harder when we have an election coming. Toning down that rhetoric and just figuring out、uh, how to make the best decisions for the health of、uh, our country in the U.S. and up in Canada as well. And I guess there's some overlapping themes that that、uh, go into some of the industries that I spend time in, but but specific to legal,、um, I, I I think. You know, I, I get excited at least about the opportunity that、uh, introducing technology into the legal profession brings, and so I think a lot about that. Like, okay, can can COVID nineteen as as ugly as that is, can that can there be a silver lining and that it introduces an accelerant into the adoption of technology in different ways? But the the kind of analogy to what we see at the at the、uh, you know kind of broader governmental level. Or even world level, is、uh, it's fascinating how when you try to change, even in the time of crisis, when you try to change things within legal, there is always there's a faction or two that is just fighting so hard to keep things the way that they are. And you know, I'm happy to dig into that a bit more. But you know, I I would love to see、uh, a more Cohesive, collaborative, systematic approach among the different states, among the bars, to say, okay, let let's kind of assume for the next,、uh, well, forever. How's that? That we will be doing more、uh, distributed and online type of activities, whether it's within the courts or with our customers slash our clients, etc. And what are some ways that we can start adopting some model? And、uh, let's just come up with some great ideas to how our courts and our lawyers and administrators, etc., might work more online. So 
seeing some interesting conversations, but I'm also seeing a decent amount of uh, stress and fighting as well that, again, seems to consistently find its way into conversations that we have in legal. So I, I do want to pull up that thread in a moment, but maybe to get our listeners on a, a common footing with your background, Mark, can you, can you walk through your your story uh, in an abbreviated way from, from your Expedia days to, to founding Avo, why you founded Avo. It's a story I've heard many times and I, I never tire of hearing it. Uh, and, and, and some of what you achieved over the course of building Avo, and you did run into some of that resistance that you're describing over the course of, of building Avo. would love to hear where you saw uh, you know, both lawyers and the broader industry resistant to change, how you uh, overcame some of that, and, and what some of the enduring impact you saw Avo having on the industry. Okay, well, there's a lot in there. I, I'll start by just saying that um, you know, being a lawyer myself, uh, my wife's a lawyer, uh, I, I, um, I just, my entire life, I've been surrounded by lawyers. Um, and I, I just watched how the legal profession is, it's just such an important part of how we operate our society. Let's just call it in, in the Americas, you know, any place that has, you know, established solid legal systems. Uh, or, or a set of rules, it's critical that you have courts and lawyers supporting those courts, uh, et cetera, to solve and, and to help drive forward society. And as lawyers, I mean, we just solve so many problems for our communities and we help those communities move forward. So I guess I say all of that and um, I've always had a, a tremendous respect and deep love for the legal industry. And I've always wanted to try to push it forward in really positive ways. I think, however, I come at it very differently because I was somewhat unexpectedly, you know, I, I always loved business and maybe should have gotten my MBA, but I always pursued being a general counsel and ultimately became the first general counsel of Expedia, the travel company. And there I was able to watch both within Microsoft where Expedia started. And then once we spun out as a separate company, watch some of the greatest business minds at work. Um, and, and, and I think one thing that I really developed there was this, this uh, religion um, towards understanding your customer and being you know, consumer focused, being customer focused in everything that you do. I mean, that was just the, the overwhelming mantra at Microsoft and Expedia. It was always, let's start with the customer and then build from that. And the customer was always right, as trite as that sounds. I mean, it was maybe not every piece of what the customer said, but you know, if you sit back and take the totality of what they're saying, they're telling you what they want and need and you build for them. So I really believed that I could bring that Kind of ethos to the legal profession. And I, I still today feel that that is, if there's any improvement, is if there's any place that we can continue to push forward in innovative and great ways, it is, um, especially on the legal consumer side. So it's a little different when, when the lawyer's the customer regarding platforms, et cetera. But when we think about who ultimately pays the bills, who, who makes the legal profession happen? Well, it's, it's the customers that pay those lawyers. And 
having a, a, a better culture and better systems for talking to them and listening to them and designing products for them, that's almost everything that I think about. And um, I'll go very briefly into starting Avo. Um, I, I just, uh, it, it became as easy as saying, okay, whether it's the ethos or the structure of a marketplace, let's take what we did at Expedia and can we overlay that onto the legal profession? So I was marrying my legal background and my, my uh, uh, Expedia background. So we essentially launched Expedia for lawyers. Um, the, the light bulb went off in that, you know, I, I went off after Expedia. I talked for a while. I was living in Italy and teaching there. And I had this, uh, you know, I, I, I was, again, I, I'm, I'm on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, right? I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere near uh, the United States. I hadn't been practicing for some time because I moved to the business side. I stopped being the general counsel uh, right. at Expedia long before I left. And yet, you know, I go away and I'm, I'm teaching finance. I'm not even teaching legal. And yet I'm getting all these calls from friends and family regarding legal issues. And I'm thinking, why are they calling me? You know, like they don't call me for travel. Uh, and I spend a lot of time and, you know, they don't call I me I have for, this for kind of problem. Issues. Can you help me find oh, yeah, a lawyer so that... Friends starting companies. I had a friend going through a, a really tough divorce. Uh, it was those types of calls that I'm getting from... These are really bright, educated people. But when it came to navigating the legal profession, they just had no idea what they were doing. And that's really, that was the epiphany moment when the light bulb uh, went off to where I said, geez, there, there are all these tools for travel, which, you know, you screw up your travel trip, eh, you're upset. It's not, it wasn't great. You might've lost out on a week or two weeks, but you'll get over it. You screw up your legal trip, <laughs> like your divorce, yeah. and it affects you your entire life. And yet there were no tools. So think of the level of that import. I kind of sat back and said, there are no tools at the intersection of one of the most important uh, or high stakes part of your life, you know, high stakes part of your life and no tools at that intersection. Yeah. You, there's probably a business idea in there somewhere. If you've got better information about where to go to dinner than you do yeah. on, you know, this, like you said, super high stakes life event. Right. And it's still, it's interesting. I feel like with AVA, we kind of pushed the profession forward and it was very painful in pushing it forward. But now I feel like it's kind of slowing again. And uh, there, as things move online and the, whether a state is going to allow that real-time video conference or uh, you know, a, a platform that, that allows the consumer to interact with lawyers more easily, whether that platform can get paid or how they get paid, et cetera. There's been a bit of a freezing of kind of, okay, the internet, everybody's gotten used to in the last 10 years, the internet. Okay. That we, we can live with that. But now the internet, as it drives interactivity, is something that I, it, I, I really am watching the legal profession be kind of befuddled again. So let, let's, let's explore that. Maybe first you talked about pushing the, the profession forward and achieving some level of transformation over your time at, at Avo. Can, can you talk about where you felt like you were able to get to and, and maybe in particular where you see things slowing down again now and, and, and maybe to segue into the COVID-19 discussion, 
how you see COVID-19 potentially catalyzing some of the change that we've seen stall out. Sure. So to talk about, you know, the historical of AVO, when we launched, I mean, we were, we were, I kind of had that epiphany moment we talked about earlier in the spring of 2005, had the team hired up by 2006, launched in 2007. So this is becoming ancient history, right? And people forget, like, the number one resource for consumers to find a lawyer at that time was the yellow pages. Right. Right. And so yeah. there was this new, this new fangled thing, the internet. Ooh, geez. And the idea that there would be a review about a lawyer and, you know, a question and answer forum, like, Oh my God, let's, let's have everyone's head explode. Yeah. This is um, pre iPhone. This is yeah, totally oh yeah, different landscape. Exactly. So, um, it really took a while to get, to get the profession's head wrapped around it. Now, you know, I, I kind of chopped the legal profession into thirds, right? So you have the early adopters, and there are a lot of, of really innovative early adopters with technology, and they just go after it. And then there's the wait and seers, and then there, there are, I call them the lowest common denominators, you know, the curmudgeons, that no matter what it is, it's bad. And they are going to go to the bar and stamp their feet and say, we have a problem on our hands. And, and, you know, I mean, I often talk about how lawyers are great issue spotters. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's how, that's how lawyers make money. I get it. But when it comes to business, you have to be great opportunity spotters. And I feel like on that spectrum, the one third that are the early adopters, they've built out the muscle memory for both issue spotting and opportunity spotting. And I feel like the lowest common denominator just sit in the issue spawning. Um, but anyway, so so uh, this marketplace, so it was it was so weird for the profession because we started by not going to lawyers or the bars and saying, hey, what do you think we need? We went to consumers and did a bunch of consumer research to say, why are you locked? And they just said, listen, you know, the, the big things that came out of it just very generally were that they, they just, they, they didn't know what lawyers did they they just and and when it came to the process of either hiring the lawyer or after they've hired the lawyer it was i mean we might as well have been trying to teach them mandarin it was just so removed from anything that they understood and um you know especially as you move into lower income uh those people have been so beaten up over and over by not having any access to lawyers, any access to the legal industry or knowledge that they just look at it as this thing that sort of happens to you. It's like getting the flu, you know, it, the, the idea that they can be proactive in any way and, and be empowered in any way. It's, it's just lost upon them. So, right. you know, we sat back and said, we, we, we can empower the consumer here. And, We'll do it by giving them a number of tools, whether it was the AVO rating to evaluate a lawyer's background, which AVO rating was resume scoring in the way that I, as an ex-general counsel and someone who had you know, been swimming in the legal profession for some time, could evaluate a lawyer's resume very quickly. You know, can we, that's, everybody loves to talk about AI and ML. Well, you want to talk about some of the earliest AI and ML in, in legal? That was the AVO rating. Um, and then we layered on this question and answer forum, which just absolutely exploded where anyone could come in for free, and this exists today within AVO, um, and ask a question, and then lawyers would answer it. Yeah. 
And all we were doing there was helping take down the friction between the consumer. So the consumer can come in for free, ask a question. And the lawyer, when they, so, so they don't have to pay. So there's no friction there. So it's a little bit easier to get them in and just take the first step. And then they're having a conversation with a lawyer and they're like, wow, this person's pretty normal and they don't seem so intimidating. And they've told me stuff so that I understand. And then more often than not, they just end up hiring that lawyer. That would then teach the lawyers that, hey, like you don't need to get paid right on the barrel head. Take some time, understand your customer, build a relationship and start using these social networks, these social, uh, these social portals, these social interactions to drive business. Right. And so everybody was winning. And that's when the thing just exploded. Right. Uh, to the point of, you know, over 300,000 lawyers using it uh, as a platform by the time that uh, we, we sold the business. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, it was it, what was so amazing about it is the, the, the number of emails and notes and gifts that I would get from consumers or from lawyers, both, and saying, listen, you changed my life, you changed my practice. And that's, we, we just used to sit back and go, God, we've created a real win-win. To, everybody wins. And it, it just, it was, it was one of the, it's probably the most, outside of my family, but you know, the, outside of the personal elements in business, probably the most gratifying thing that I've ever been involved in just because I feel like we moved the legal profession forward and helped lawyers be more accessible and, and helped both sides of the equation. I think uh, one of the things to be super proud of as well, uh, Mark, and the interview uh, you did with, with Bob Ambrosia, I think he correctly pointed out you've been you know, one of the most, if not the most influential people in, in transforming the way the legal industry worked. And that, that, that impact with AVO was, uh, was enormous and something you should you should really feel feel proud about. But when when we start thinking about beyond Avo and, and where you're seeing things, maybe slow down or, or as you as you said, the profession maybe starting to become befuddled about what what comes next. Uh, and you're starting to see uh, regulators and and other bodies start to act in a counterproductive way. Can can you elaborate on what you saw the what you see is the slowdown that is maybe starting to to beset the industry despite this this momentum that we saw over the last decade? Yeah, so I think it's a lot of pieces, but I'll, I'll try to summarize it as follows. Um, so as I mentioned before, everybody struggled with the internet, but finally got okay with the idea. I mean, what year was Bates v. Arizona? Mid, mid-70s, right? So we're we're... We're only uh, uh, 35, 55? No. Yeah. 25, 45 years from uh, since lawyers have kind of found that it's okay to advertise. The internet was tricky because it allowed every type of lawyer to have a voice and some of them be more aggressive than others. And uh, it, it just, some of the most innovative young lawyers and understood how to use that tool were actually able to bring tremendous competition to the more established lawyers or firms. And so that, that created a lot of stress in the system as to whether this was the appropriate advertising medium. 
And so it took uh, from, you know, I, I would say that it was probably about a five year process to where the bars started saying, no, you know, this is the, it's imperfect, but it is something that we, we can live with and we look at it as a tool that is good for both consumers and more. And so let's call that, you know, around 2010 ish. Yeah. So we've had a pretty good run for the last decade of if it relates to lawyers advertising on the internet, eh, the bars are, are pretty good with that, but it is just a digital extension of what they were doing with billboards for the most part. So the bars are okay with a website and, uh, uh, they're okay with you having an intake form and some Q and a and, but it, it, all of it largely just feels like that, that billboard, right? Um, Even there's a huge chunk of lawyer websites that just say, call my right. 800 number in the same way the billboard would have, right? They're basically digital right. billboards. That's right. And so if you think about where the rest of the industry or the rest of the world uh, but a lot of other, whether it's white collar or, or any type of, of industry where they're interacting with the world, um, many people, there, there are platforms and there are technology that are being developed for uh, people to interact more aggressively, more, more meaningfully with the service that is coming their way. So what's a good example? Uh, Uber. Um, so, you know, um, I, I, I hesitate with the Uber example because the, the visceral reaction, if you're talking to many lawyers, is like, you know, I, I do so much more than just drive a car, than car service. But I'm just trying to keep it simple, right? We get it. I, I, I get that lawyers do amazing things. But if you think about how kind of boring and overdone like did anybody think that you could change the paradigm in hailing a cab no it's like but i i mean it was just so it was so boring and set and would there be money in it what have you but with a simple iphone uh app that allowed the, the drivers of those cars to better understand who they were picking up and who the, the people who needed a ride better understand the car that they were getting into and the driver. And with other smaller tools, like when are they showing up? And um, uh, you know, how, how easy is it for me to pay them? I mean, all Travis and the Uber folks did was say, how do we bring together these very needy consumers who really hate the um, uh, hate the cab system as it is and marry them with a bunch of a, a much broader set of capacity which is beyond the cabs themselves it's people who just have a car and bring them together in a much more efficient and actually conversational way when you really sit back and think of that app it's a you're, you're not always talking to the driver you can text them and pick up the phone but it's the way that there's information flowing back and forth. So each person understands what happened, what's happening, yeah. which is the essence of communication. So that is one example. I could give you a number of others. Um, and and I, I'll add one extension to that, that I think a lot of people miss when you're talking about an Uber or an Amazon prime, et cetera. 
by having these platforms, they, they actually have a number of requirements for you to, to, to succeed on the, to, to even be part of the platform, but especially to ex succeed on the platform. So you have to have a certain type of car. It has to be clean. You have to have this kind of driving record. You can't have a criminal record, et cetera. Uh, Amazon Prime, you have to use their boxes. You have to ship within so many days. You have to take returns in a certain way. And what a number of these platforms have done that I think sometimes the consumers miss is they've, they've created a set of rules that are super uh, sensitive, super centric to their customer base because they've done all this research into what their customers want and need and they require that of the supply side. And um, it, it ends up molding a, an output for the consumer that is tailored to them. And whether they really internalize that or consciously think about that, uh, subconsciously they internalize it and they love that the, there's that wow moment because somebody has listened to them and delivered something to them that is so tailored to them by requiring that the supplier, the supply side, act, you know, behave in a certain way. So, um, and we could, we could go on with example after example of where this is happening in different industries. Now in legal, uh, again, I think we, we kind of stub our toe right at the outset because we're not listening to the consumer and we believe that we're smarter than the consumer. And I especially think this happens in a lot of courts, like a lot of judges who set a, you know, the tone for a lot of regulations. Uh, I have worked extensively for many Supreme Courts and, and many groups of judges to talk about the future of the law. And consistently, I run into judges who there's tremendous hubris in there to where they, they believe that uh, only they really can design how the courts and how the legal process and the legal regulation works. And for me, that's where we just, that's where I collide with them. And I think that's where sometimes people think I'm kind of a rabble rouser because I don't want to hear what you think as a judge. I don't want to hear what you think as like, I just want you to tell me what the customer thinks. Now we right. can do some of our judgmental overlay on that, you know, or if there's kind of a disagreement between the customers as to what, where we go first or how we do it. I, but but for you, without any research or even talking to your target audience to tell me what you think is just irrelevant. I, it just, uh, it, it's so it's, antithetical to how it's business It's probably work. wrong as well. And I, I think something right. you, you did at Avo that we've uh, continued the tradition, so to speak, at, at Clio in some of our consumer research through the Legal Trends Report, uh, we see over and over again that lawyers' expectations of what consumer preferences are uh, and and I'm sure to an even greater degree, judges' expectations around what consumer preferences are are wildly off. There is a massive chasm between how consumers want to consume legal services and the way that most the legal industry broadly believes they want to consume those services. That that's exactly right. And so you know, as just a small point, if if there was any takeaway here of that that kind of long preamble I just gave you. Um, you know, for, for any lawyer watching this that runs their own business, if, if you're not getting input from your customers as to how you're doing, you're failing, right? Because you just can't design a level of services without that conversation. But now getting specifically to your question, 
I feel in all these different industries um, with technology, um, you know, the moving a lot of functionality. So I, I think it starts with, with the smartphones and then moving a lot of functionality into the cloud with SaaS-based systems so that you can be processing a lot in the cloud. I think a lot of it works with um, uh, the ability to distribute. So whether it's through voice or, or video or document sharing or collaboration, there are all these different pieces of software that are making the end user experience or the peer-to-peer -peer experience so much more fruitful. And it is this just, I, I can't even put a great word around it, but when it comes to the legal profession and we start talking about uh, the, the ability for um, uh, lawyers to interact in real time, say prior to the conflict check, that's one that always comes up or or how the money is not uh, funneled immediately into a custodial account, or you know whatever the the issue that you may be spotting, um, as it relates to this more technical, distributed, collaborative use of collaborative use of tools, um, the the bars are that we're just not moving forward on those, right? We. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a great example. Um, and I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to use anyone's name that, uh, that where, where they, it's not my job to be using their name, but okay. So there, there are companies out there. So I continue to advise a lot of companies and some of them are from outside of legal and some of them are in legal and some of them are outside of legal and thinking of getting into legal. And um, so I end up having a lot of those conversations, whether it's the marketplace or the tools, and then sometimes with the overlay of legal or getting into legal. And um, consistently, when the in these conversations, you have very smart business people. More often than not, they are they are not lawyers, but they have tremendous SaaS expertise. They have tremendous uh, technology or, or collaboration expertise. I mean, they're coming out of companies like Google, right? And they're saying, God, this tool that we were using at Google to the extent that we were, we were able to overlay this into the client, uh, uh, you know, into the litigation process or whatever it may be, um, we would really like to do that. But still, that person cannot bring that idea into legal and share in the goodness that they bring. Now, you can, you can charge a fee, like you can charge a SaaS fee, like Clio does. But what if you are attempting, what if that legal person is looking to team with the business person to essentially run a better type of law firm or a better type of dispute resolution? And in those instances, the minute that it starts to touch on possibly, you know, having business people involved in law firms or non-judges, non-lawyers involved in certain types of dispute resolution, uh, that lowest common denominator, the curmudgeon crowd, 
will step in and tell the executive director of their respective bar that there is a massive problem and that they need to stop it. And so it, uh, it causes, you know, either just tremendous fatigue and people like me or, or fear to where people say, geez, I don't want to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but it freezes the market. And so, you know, without going on and on about this, let's just, let's just leave the business people out of it because it's such a hot button, but I'm telling you, we would move so much more quickly as an industry if lawyers could team with business people. And I, listen, you can spot all the issues around that that you want, but, uh, business people who have some experience in one sector and bring it to the legal sector is not a bad thing. Um, and as you pointed out, you gave a great talk at the 2019 Clio Cloud Conference, Mark, on oh, uh, lawyers are from uh, Mars, business people are from Venus. Uh, it, it, it was a fantastic talk, really, really well received. Uh, and it's available on YouTube, by the way, for anyone that wants to uh, search for that title, they'll uh, enjoy the uh, the talk you gave. It was so informative. But you make, you million, know, really... 10 million views. 10 million views and climbing. Uh, <laughs> It is um, a fantastic talk, though, and you make a very compelling point that, hey, uh, lawyers are business people, and you spend a lot of the talk motivating what some might view as uh, a controversial point. I don't think you or I do, but law firms are businesses and need to be run as such. So the idea of teaming with a business person to help improve the delivery of legal services and improve access to legal services doesn't seem like it should be uh, as controversial an idea as it, it appears to be, at least for as you pointed out, some of those curmudgeons. Yeah, I think when you come at it, I, I think that conversation gets more relevant um, when you come at it through the lens of a number of lawyers would rather just be technicians. And that's okay, right? Like you have a number of lawyers who went to law school because they love the law. <laughs> Thank goodness. Right. Yeah. But they don't want to do the business stuff. And so what happens is they almost believe that the business planet is a separate planet. And that, that was the, that was the kind of the, the through line on that speech is you're already running a small to medium to large business. But I think for the majority of people who are in that room, they're running small businesses. Right. And, um, and I was just trying to help them understand that so many of the, what, what, what makes a business person is not rocket science. It's not magic. It's not a separate planet. You're already on the planet. So that was kind of what drove that speech. Um, and then, how, however, you know, if we go back to this third of the most entrepreneurial lawyers, I think what 90% of them would tell you is like, oh man, if I could just take what I do and get an investor, and uh, some of the experience of that investor in medical or in restaurant delivery, I, I, I don't know, what the, what, whatever you're doing, there's, there's, it's probably been done before. And if you can find someone who's an expert in that area and have them be your partner and have them have a financial interest so that they put everything into it, that's what, that's what the most entrepreneurial lawyers would love to at least have the option to do. And it's just, you know, we are, it's partly in the States because we have 50, um, uh, 50 different regulators, 
you have all the provincial regulators up in Canada. It's very broken up. And so there's some common rules. But I can say that down in the States, I, the problem happens is that you have 50 regulators and 50 sets of curmudgeons that are going to intimidate those regulators with any new piece of technology that does not fit absolutely squarely within the rules. And I'll just, I'll just wrap it on this point to try to pull it all together is that if you were to bring in your average business person into legal, uh, let's not say average, let's say uh, somebody with a tremendous amount of experience at, at, a, at a top technology company, um, they would say that 90% uh, of time in the legal industry is, is wasted. Um, the, whether you look at it uh, the the lawyers manufacturing process and manufacturing their brief or their contract or their case, their communications that they have with their customers, their interaction with judges, they're having to physically go to court and stand in court. The idea that you cannot have every hearing over, I used to say uh, over FaceTime, I right. used to show in speeches, I would show, I would say, this is the court of the future. And it was a phone with four faces talking. And that would just send people over the edge as far as saying, you just can't do that. I remember I had a judge telling me in a closed door meeting I had with an undisclosed state group of judges. Supreme Court was there, Superior Court, uh, it, most uh, senior judges were there. And I had a judge just go after me. And he said, uh, you don't understand what it means to be a judge. You've never been a judge. And I cannot administer justice in any situation without looking that person in the eye. And I just thought, I, like, I get it. I get the body language. I get that you're reading the person. But you can do that over the phone you're still looking at them, right? It's almost like he viewed it as being behind a black curtain. Right. And, you know, I just told him that I respectfully disagreed. So, you know, I, you, you touched on this a little bit earlier. I, uh, you mentioned, you said, so, so does COVID push us forward in any way? Well, that may be an area where we're having a number of hearings online. Mo most courts have pushed the pause button. But it would be really neat if we were to see uh, a, a lot of this stuff, um, especially for certain orders, you know, like restraining orders or, or early motion, um, uh, just, you know, the more administrative stuff, being able to do that from a desk and discussing it with the judge would be so much more efficient. I mean, just so little needs to happen in that courtroom. And I, I would argue that nothing needs to happen in that courtroom, by the way. Yeah, but anyway, well, it, these are the types I, of things that when you bring them up, and if you were to bring a business person into the mix, the judges and the curmudgeons, uh, not saying that they're perfectly correlated, but let's just call it the curmudgeons, would, would say, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. So you're... you're your vision of the the FaceTime with four people attending a, a hearing looks looks prescient now. I, I got off the phone with a judge from Florida uh, just before uh, this podcast, um, and and she described the fact that they have uh, now twenty eight judges doing hearings over Zoom calls and have had awesome. over 
4,000 hearings now over, over Zoom, and it's really starting to happen. So I do think we, we are seeing the, the crucible that is COVID-19 maybe, you know, finally catalyzing some of this change. And, and, and maybe a, a, a final parting thought from you, Mark, this has been a um, super interesting discussion. We, we could go on for, for hours, and, and you and I have uh, when we have the, the leisure of that time and maybe a glass of wine, but uh, focusing in on, on a closing question, uh, how do you think about the, the changes that were maybe underway? You spent a lot of time thinking about what the future of legal services looks like uh, at AVO, and, and have certainly seen you offer a super valuable perspective on that as a board member uh, and investor at Clio. What do you see maybe that you thought maybe was off in the distant future, uh, the 10 plus year time horizon, potentially getting pulled ahead uh, thanks to the change that, that COVID-19 seems to be driving? As you, as you said, the silver lining in all of this is maybe that we're seeing transformation accelerate. What, what do you see that accelerating in the legal industry? Okay, here's, here's kind of how I chunk the legal industry in my mind. There's the acquisition of the customer, so the marketing, but that, that conversation that I was talking about, there's that yeah. piece. Then there is the processing and administrating with that customer, the interaction, and Clio covers a lot of that. Then there is the lawyering piece that is in parallel with uh, the work that you're doing for the customer. And I, I would probably call that the, the manufacturing line. I, I mentioned that earlier, possibly. But so... You know, there, there's the, the, the customer tells you what they want and need. And then, and then as the lawyer, you go off and manufacture it. And those two things don't touch a lot and they shouldn't necessarily touch. You go off and write your brief or what have you. That's, it's not necessarily for the customer to get involved in after they've told you all the facts. Right. And then there is the, the, the judicial part, right? So I look at four parts. There's the acquisition part. There's the operational administrative part. There is the lawyer art slash manufacturing part. And then that kind of overlaps into the judicial piece. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that is, is moving in almost every other industry. And I think is, is, um, is, is coming to legal at a, at a, at a decent pace is the number of tools that service platforms. So, uh, in in lead gen, it's just not Yellow Pages advertising or Google advertising. It is actually identifying a potential customer and getting them to a platform and creating interactivity there and creating conversation and re-conversation, et cetera. Very similarly, the platform, as you move it into the operational piece, you're seeing more and more tools. And by the way, a lot of this is driven because investors are finally starting to believe and starting to understand, A, how much money is in legal. And uh, uh, how how ripe it is for disruption, uh, but we're seeing a lot of investment. So, on the operational and on the manufacturing line, uh, one of the struggles in that historically is that there is so much data. There is so much. Um, uh, it, it, it's this. It, imagine it's like this. It's this field of data. Often, you know, we often talk about data lakes. It's it's this lake of data that uh, you can't get your arms around. So we're starting to see platforms. Uh, Clio would be a phenomenal example, but you're even seeing it in the litigation process where they're using AI and ML to 
uh, well, they're using technology, a platform and technology to first help people get their arms around all of that data, all those pieces that impact their practice operationally or in the art of law. And then AI and ML is helping them think through how these pieces pertain to any given instance. Right. And so, and, and I think we've had the least amount of innovation or, or we're least ripe in the innovation on that judicial side. But I'm a big believer that right in that middle, if operationally we can make law firms more efficient and we can, whether it's client records or conflicts or legal research or whatever it is on that, the, those operational pieces and make them uh, much more graspable and snapshotable and understandable for the lawyer, that will ultimately spill into the courts because the courts are more efficient, they see it happening well within the law firms, they understand it better, and you start seeing judges, for example. I mean, a judge, how like think about the process, and I won't go on and on about this, but a judge right now in understanding and processing case law hands a massive stack of documents or a massive zip file to a clerk who reads it all, okay? And then, and then, they have a conversation that that goes back and forth on whether the that it, it all makes sense so much of that process in other industries is being automated right and while the while the judge can be the ultimate arbiter and overlay machines will have to have their place there's so much case law out there and there's so much bad law that is driven because you have judges or clerks that didn't get their arms around it all. But machines can help us uh, uh, process, understand, uh, push that entire process forward. And unfortunately, when it comes to the courts, I think we're 15, 20 years out on that. But if we can, if we can do better in the middle, or maybe even on the client acquisition, but it doesn't quite touch. It's, uh, I, I think it really sits in the operational part for law firms, uh, uh, both on the client side and the art side and the manufacturing side. The more that we can uh, uh, grasp all of the different vectors that impact those operations and the, the art of being a lawyer, uh, all boats will rise and, and it'll be the firms, it'll be the lawyers, it'll be the law clerks, it'll be the, uh, the courts themselves. And <clears throat> tying this all back with some of the earlier parallels you were drawing to the, the Ubers of the world and the Amazons and the, the Airbnbs that have focused on the client experience, focused on the consumer. I, I think the key point here as well is they've, they've in turn unlocked enormous latent demand that didn't exist prior to those. Exactly. So the, the lawyers looking for the opportunity in all of this, if you're able to, to innovate and, and we need the, I agree wholeheartedly with you. We need the, the courts and the judicial system to evolve in kind to, to match this opportunity to better service the needs of the market. And I think what you uh, helped accomplish it at AVO and is still a lot of work to be done is this this data that we see from the World Justice Project that 77% of consumers did not have their legal issue resolved by a lawyer on the on the supply side. You see most lawyers telling us they need more work, they need more clients, they need more cases. There's still a lot, there's a bridge to be built connecting those two worlds. And 
I, I know you and I both believe technology is a, a got to be a big part of that. Um, a, a concluding thought, Mark, our, uh, the conversation has been amazing and the time has flown by. A parting thought, I would love for you to think about a call to action to, you know, our, our listeners are everyone from, from lawyers to bar leaders, the executive directors, the presidents, um, and, and some judges that are, are listening to help enable the change that you think we, we need to see over the next decade. If we think about chapter two of the, the book we're writing about legal transformation, uh, what would your call to action be? Uh, I, I can really come up with so many of them, but I think they all, so uh, let me frame it like this and I'll try not to be too verbose. Um, we are taught as lawyers to be perfectionists. Um, perfection is the absolute enemy of good. Perfection is the absolute enemy of progress. And man, if that's not one thing I learned early in technology is technologists, business people, they experiment a lot. And when it's not perfect, then they quickly pivot and they modify it, but it allows them to get things out the door and it allows them to have the conversation with their customers. And uh, so I feel that whether it's from the regulatory top-down point of view or the small business, you know, single solo lawyer who's just hanging a shingle and trying to make it, if I could, if I could tell them all just one thing, Again, there are a lot of things I would tell them. Uh, it would uh, it would be progress, not perfection. That is something I'll I'll close with this kind of funny story. I I used to tell my legal team when I was a general counsel at Expedia, I would always tell them progress, not perfection. Like that contract does not need to be 100% perfect. Know the eight things that we die over. Let the rest go. Like just yeah. move the business forward. And uh, they even gave me a plaque. It's in here somewhere uh, <laughs> uh, in my being renovated office. But um, it, it says progress, not perfection. I found out after the fact that that is actually a mantra for Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and somebody saw it in my office and was like, hey, did you go to AA? So uh, maybe I picked it up from somewhere. I, I don't know. But it, it, whether you use it for Alcoholics Anonymous or whether you use it for your practice or your court, it, it's so important that, that, that you, we as an industry have to make progress and we cannot be stymied by trying to be perfect. That is a fantastic note to end on, Mark, and, and it ties in really nicely with something I've talked about a few times over the course of this show as well, which is that COVID-19 has given us a really unique opportunity to experiment as a profession as well. Yeah, clients, you're right. and be imperfect. Be imperfect. Your clients yeah. are ready to roll with whatever. They're open-minded. That's a great point. I might use that, by the way. I didn't come, I should have come up with that. We should have pre-briefed and then I could have sounded smarter. Well, we, uh, we had a terrific conversation. I think this is why you and I enjoy working together so much. Uh, we do have a, a really productive jam session when we, when we find the time. So thanks again for joining us, Mark. Uh, this was a fantastic no, always, conversation. Always my pleasure, Jack. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. 
Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 